You know, it wasn't that many years ago that men believed that the earth was the center of the universe. They actually thought that the rest of the universe revolved around the earth, that all of the planets orbited around the earth, that the sun took its spin around the earth on our behalf. Now, obviously, modern astronomy has shown this to be an error, but I find it very interesting that the historical view of, of this sort of idea tells us a lot about the mentality of mankind, is that we, we naturally tend to believe that everything sort of revolves around us, that, that everything revolves around things that we do or things that we're thinking, and we want to be the center of what, what is happening. And because I believe of sort of our sin nature without serious attention to this mindset, we can even slip into it without even realizing that that is the corner at which we're making all of our decisions in. And I think this is reflective in our spiritual life as well. We often think that um, in the spiritual realm, man is central. And so we focus our talk or we talk about um, what we're doing to affect the supernatural or, or how the things that we're doing is, is, is affecting the supernatural. But it's true at times, but the supernatural is not dependent upon the natural. The supernatural isn't dependent upon the natural. The supernatural exists no matter what we do. And the supernatural is, is ruling and reigning on, in God's hands, in, in God's order. And I think we often spend time thinking about what God can do for us or what God hasn't done for us or what he's appearing to not do. And we get sort of in this small mind thinking. And it's really difficult to turn our thinking to focus on what our duty and our responsibility is as a Christ follower. Like, what are the things he expects of us? And today, we really wanted to focus, as maybe you can tell throughout the service, on worship. We had a poem read. We sang some songs. We, we came down front. We had the kids um, sing a worship song. We're thinking about worship. And I think real and true worship can be difficult because worship is God-centered. It is not man-centered. Worship focuses on God and his greatness, and it actually has little or nothing to do with our own circumstances or our own situations or our own feelings. It has everything to do with who God is and centering our thoughts and our mind and our will and emotions on him. And I think when we face struggles or annoyances or frustrations or crises, or maybe I call them wilderness times, when we face wilderness times, we tend to focus even more significantly on ourselves. It becomes increasingly hard to look upward and look outward and make God the center because we are just panicking, trying to figure out how to get out of the situation that we're in. But this is the very reason why when we face trials, when we face that wilderness, that we most effectively navigate it in worship. That worshiping is actually the most effective thing that we can do when we come up against a difficult situation or a difficult circumstance or a difficult time of our life. Because worship adjusts our focus. It takes what our mind is always centering around, how we're going to make it, how this is going to affect us 
how it's going to affect our family, how it's going to affect the nucleus of, of the people that, that we come in contact with. Worship changes things from man-centered to God-centered, and I believe that worship puts the universe back in perspective. It, it, it undoes the thought that the world is the center and helps us realize that we are just part of a bigger plan, of a, of a bigger purpose, and under a big God. So have you ever wondered um, maybe why God has you in a certain situation? Maybe you've even asked yourself this week um, why your circumstances are less favorable than others or why God has had you face this particular burden or why you've dealt with these tough things or maybe why at such a young age you're wrestling through such a difficult time. I think that's a very natural thing for us to ask ourselves. And I want to look to Deuteronomy 8 this morning to, to unpack a little bit of the answer. And it's Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3, and it addresses adversity. And the text is addressing the Israelites. And it might surprise you what it says, so, so just follow along with me there on the screen. Verse 2 says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You know, Moses explained that to the Israelites that not only had God led Israel into the wilderness, he, he took them there, he purposely allowed adverse circumstances. He, he purposely allowed difficult things to happen, and the scripture says, gives the reason why. But in our man-centered thinking, we often think that adversity suggests that God is absent. We have difficult times, and we say, God, where are you? I thought you were supposed to help me. I'm following you, I'm doing everything you're asking me to do, and yet I'm still in this very frustrating position. But Moses is teaching otherwise. He says, adversity is a catalyst for worship. He says, I, God says, I use adversity to draw people to me. Adversity doesn't mean God is absent. Adversity means God is present. And not only is he present, he is inviting, he's pursuing He's using those times to get us to draw closer to him. This passage teaches us that the purpose of hardship God brought upon his people, it says in verse 3, was to humble them and teach them to depend on him. Actually, that's in verse 2. To humble them and teach them to depend on him. In fact, it, it lays out an example. In verse 3, God, God made them hungry and then God gave them something to eat. So that God could teach them that man does not live on bread alone. He always has a purpose in what he's doing, but he's allowing those adverse circumstances to draw us closer to him. In Israel, what happened, the scripture says, rather than becoming humble, which is what God was trying to get the end result through the trial, they looked at the adversity and they were man-centered, they were not God-centered about it. And they looked at the famine and the fact they were hungry, and they made themselves the center of the story, and they screamed and yelled and said, well, God, if you were around, we wouldn't be hungry. 
If you were really for us, Moses, you say that this God is here, but here we are and we're hungry and we're starving and God is not here. He must not care about us. And they made it about themselves. And when they did that, their potentially worshipful hearts and humble hearts became hard. And they began to play the victim. They began to to not trust that God would do what he wanted to do and teach them what he wanted to teach them. And then rather than depending on God, they became independent, independent of God, and had rebellious hearts. And in all the years the Israelites roamed around the wilderness, God never failed to provide for them. He may not have done it in the way that they expected. He may not have done it in the timing that they expected. But we saw the whole story, and God never, ever failed to provide for them. Even despite their grumbling and their disobedience, he gave them everything they needed. And Israel consistently interpreted every crisis as an occasion for death. Everything that would happen, they would say, what are we going to do? Just die in this wilderness. Did God bring us here just to let us die? And they were, were not looking at things. They were not looking at that adversity as something that God was using to deliver them. They saw every instance of adversity as evil, but God said something so different. He said that every calamity was an occasion for good. He said every time that they would face something, if they would worship through it, if they would make God the center of the situation and not themselves, if they would worship through it, that he would bring purpose and he would bring life and he would bring an adjustment that would then bring longer life and longer blessing and longer purpose. It's interesting, in the New Testament, James addresses the same issue in chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So James says the same thing, similar to what Moses is saying to the Israelites in the wilderness. He says, look, you're looking at adversity all wrong. You're sitting in your circumstances and you're saying, God, where are you? And God's saying, this is how I'm showing you that I'm here. Adversity isn't meant to push us from God or to be a punishment. All adversity isn't evil or intended for the death of something inside of us. But adversity is a catalyst for worship. And it's supposed to push us into dependence upon him. It's supposed to push us to worship. And when we respond in worship it puts the universe back in perspective. And it makes our hearts hungry and humble and God's presence is there. And we're able to stand in the middle of that adversity and trust that God has a purpose and a plan and he's drawing us to him. And so I want to ask you this morning, if you're facing something, some wilderness, some crisis, some difficulty, how is your heart responding to that adversity? Is it responding in worship? Or is it responding in resistance? Is your heart soft and and you're able to come to God with the situation and worship through it because it's all about God being God and not actually what's happening in our chaotic little world that that can we worship through that? Or, Or are we resistant to it because we don't feel like God is playing fair? He's not doing what we're asking him to do. And if we're doing that, the scripture says our heart gets hard. Our heart gets hard in those moments. 
But when we worship in adversity, we can have humble hearts and, and hungry hearts for God's presence. So I want to just take a closer look today at, at Psalm 95 as the core of our text. And as I mentioned, today we're dedicating um, this morning to worship. So um, after I speak, the um, team's going to come back up and we're going to worship just a little bit more and have time to sort of put together uh, some of these things in practice that we're learning. But I want to read to you Psalm 95, um, 1 through 7. It says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice. And this psalm, like many others, I just chose this one for us to particularly dig in on, describes worship as ascribing ultimate value to God. Putting God in first place. Putting God in the center where everything in life revolves around him. Verse 3 says, The Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. Little g. So above anything else. Above anything else we give our time or our attention to. There's nothing and no one more worthy. And the psalmist suggests that worship, because of that, must engage our whole being. It must engage our whole being. Now, we've learned that who we are consists of our mind, our will, and our emotions. Those are the three things that, that describe our whole being. And so this psalm actually addresses all of those. Um, in verse 1, it says, come, sing, shout for joy. Worship speaks in emotional language. It, it allows us to express the emotions that God has put inside of us. And you know, our emotions can do different things to different people, right? Some of us jump up and down. Some of us get goosebumps. Some of us raise our hands. Some of us just stand introspectively and think about the goodness of God. But worship should bring an emotional release. It should make us respond emotionally. Tim Hawkins may have said it best in this short clip. I know that each church has its own worship style, you know, which is cool. Some people are more expressive in worship, some people more subtle, and it's all good. Um, I go to a church that's pretty expressive in worship. It's, um, it's a hand-raising church. That's what it is, right? That's what, you know. Anybody here go to a hand-raising church? Anybody here? Sweet. Who here does not go to a hand-raising church? <laughs> some of you are trying. You're like, I can't. I want to, Tim. I need to get some momentum. <laughs> totally cool. But hey, if you're not used to going to a hand-raising church, you want to go and join us, feel free to join us, but don't feel like you've got to join right in, okay? Start slow. we got a lot of different hand-raises that we use. We actually have names for our hand-raises. So I'm going to walk you through real quick, okay, what they are, just to let you know. Say you're at my church, music is rocking, start slow. Hands in the pockets, little elbow flap, you're fine. Very subtle. Get warmed up. Get your heart rate up. When you're warmed up, start with the first one. Ready? Carry the TV. K. 
carry the TV. That's our first one. Very subtle. Go to big screen. Big screen, a little wider. Next one's my fish was this big. My fish was this big. If you're a liar, you can go out there. That's fine. Don't worry about it. Jesus loves you. Grace. Next one's hold my baby. Hold my baby. Got dueling light bulbs. That's our next one, dueling light bulbs. Got goalpost. Everybody knows goalpost. Throwing a heartburn. A lot of people like to do heartburn. Double heartburn, right back to goalpost. What's my favorite? Mufasa. Mufasa, that's my favorite. The circle of life. Tim, can you go higher? Yes, you can. You can take one hand, go a bunch of different stuff. Pointer, hatchet, schoolroom. Release the doves, give the Lord a high five. Press it out. A lot of women like to wash the window. Wash the window. And when you're comfortable there, go for the big three. Village people, Rocky, touchdown. There you go, there's your big three. Worship can bring an emotional release. Worship can bring a, a thing that comes inside of you and just wants you to respond. And that's what he's talking about in a really funny way. But the idea is that the Holy Spirit is just inside of you and you just can't contain it anymore. And so there's something you have to do with your physical body to show that you are ascribing the ultimate value to Jesus Christ. Worship's also a submission of our will. Verse 6 in this passage says, Come, let us bow down. Let us bow down and worship. In order to fully worship, we have to submit our will fully. Not what I want, God. Not my plans. Not my preferences. This is all about you. This is all about you. Do what you want to do with my life. Do what, what, what you want to do with my adversity. Do what you want to do with all the good things about my life. God, it's all yours. You take it. You show me what you want me to do. Here it is. That is worship. It's submission to our will. Worship engages our emotions, engages our will, and it also engages our mind. Verse 8 um, talks about how the Israelites hardened their hearts in the wilderness. And they made a cognitive choice they made a choice to keep it man-centered. They decided what to think about the trials they were facing. And when they did that, their mind chose not to worship, and their hearts were hardened. I really believe that worship happens in your mind, your will, and your emotions, not just your emotions. So it starts with thinking. It starts with making a rational choice to worship. It starts with having your mind see what God is worth and give him the praise for his worth. And it begins by us cognitively taking inventory of the excellencies of God. Very practically saying, God, this is what I know about you to be true. And because of that, I can stand before you today and my mind can worship you. My will can submit to you and my emotions can be released in honor of what I know you are to be true. If it doesn't change you, it's not worship. 
If it doesn't change you, it's not worship. If it doesn't change something about your mind, will, or emotions, it could be this great cultural or emotional experience. It could be a really great pick-me-up, an inspiration. You could go home and be like, man, that felt good today. That was really great. But you know what? If it didn't change something about you, then it wasn't worship. Because worship, as an essence, isn't something we come to just enjoy. Good job, team. Okay, good. It comes for us to participate with our mind, our will, and emotions. There is this process in the industrial world called galvanization. And when you, when you galvanize steel, you dip it into this protective zinc coating. And the idea is that once you do that, it prevents the steel from rusting. That no matter what uh, elements that it's exposed to, maybe it's outdoors, the rain, the snow, the sleet, no matter what happens, that it pr- protects it from rusting and it gives the strength, a covering and a strength to the product. In that same way, I believe that worship galvanizes your whole life. That it wraps you in this protective coating that prevents your spiritual life from rusting out. It prevents your integrity and your purpose and all the things that God has designed for you to do from rusting out because of the things that you face. And worship, ascribing God as having ultimate value, is the thing that galvanizes your life, galvanizes your spiritual life to make it protected and strengthened no matter what you face. In Psalm 95, um, it also talks about, in verse 1 and in verse 6, It says, come, let us sing. Did you notice that? It says, come, let us bow down. The psalmist is suggesting that worship is a plural activity. That private worship is important. Uh, Private worship in your car or in the shower is good, and and it keeps you close to God, and you should do that all week. But corporate worship is imperative. Because corporate worship is where we feel life change. Corporate worship is where the life change happens. C.S. Lewis, this amazing theologian, explains this spiritual principle so well. Um, And he talks about how he was part of a famous circle of friends. There were three of them. And it was C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, and a man, another author named Charles Williams. Can you imagine these conversations? (laughs) I would love to just be overhearing them in a Starbucks for 10 minutes. the things that they would talk about. And unexpectedly, C.S. Lewis tells a story about how their friend Charles Williams dies. And C.S. Lewis and Tolkien lost this deep friendship. There was party of three, and there was now party of two. And C.S. Lewis writes this, and I want to read it to you. He, He writes, in each of my friends, there's something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never see Tolkien's reaction to a specific Charles joke. He says, I can't, I can't, draw, any, I can't draw the same things out of Charles that Tolkien could. And so I, I miss him. And then he goes on to say, far from having more of Tolkien, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of him. And then he said, in this friendship exhibits a glorious resemblance to heaven, where the very multitude of the blessed 
increase the fruition which each of us has of God. For every soul, seeing him in her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, is why the seraphim and Isaiah's vision are crying, holy, 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 to one another. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have. And so what Lewis is saying is that it takes community to know an individual. That if you have a group of friends, they're going to respond to each other differently, and there might be something that I can draw out of someone that no one else ever could. That there is beauty in this community. That's how God designed it. And so he's saying, how much more is that of Jesus Christ? That even in the scripture, we are seeing that corporate worship is how we know more of God. That seeing God in each other is the design that God has for us to know him more. You want to know God more? Then get yourself to corporate worship. If you want to understand more of who God is, something that you can't see from your corner, then get to corporate worship. In fact, Hebrews 10 talks about this. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. That worship in community allows us to see different facets and more holy who God is. And corporate worship together can communicate to us what God is trying to speak to us. God wants us to know his character through each other. Joel and I um, have this great friend that's visiting us this weekend um, from Washington, D.C. And he is the um, CALFA director of the D.C. metro area and works at American University, where Joel and I did our internship uh, about 13 years ago with Mike and Jen Godswa, who is Joy's son and daughter-in-law, all from this church. And I just want him to join us, uh, me up here today. Um, and I asked him, as we were sort of talking uh, this weekend, um, he has some great examples of how Christ is seen more fullness in community. And he has lots of stories, but I want him to share just one with today with us. I was on campus at American University, which is a block away from the Department of Homeland Security. And American University, as you may know, is one of the most liberal campuses in our country. It's one of the most politically active campuses, not only in our region, but across the world. And it was Inauguration Day on campus, and as you can imagine in the climate of Washington, D.C., and at a campus like American University, it was a very interesting day on campus. There had already been many protests, many challenges to the transition of power and government, and on Inauguration Day, we were walking from our offices in the Case Spiritual Life Center, where 28 different faith groups meet on a weekly basis from Jewish humanism to Wiccan to Chi Alpha. And we're walking and we see crowds starting to gather and everybody's pretty quiet on this day with the surprise of the results of the election. And in front of the student union building, there was a swell of people and you could tell a swell of emotion. And there was a young woman at the center of the crowd that day. I later found out her name was Lisa. And Lisa woke up on that day, and she decided to burn an American flag in front of the student union building. In fact, you may have seen her picture. It was on CNN and Fox, the cover of BuzzFeed. Megyn Kelly did a special talking about liberal elites and snowflakes, students on my campus that, according to news headlines, have no grasp of reality. 
But what I love about this story of Lisa is that there was a young man in our ministry named Jeff who decided to pursue Lisa. See, here's the thing about worship is that Jeff had worshiped for so long in Chi Alpha and in a great church like this that his worship didn't only change him, it began to change those relationships he was in. So Jeff did what nobody else on campus had done. Lisa received thousands of messages, death threats, national news attention, but she later told university officials that one person, one student asked her who her name was and what her story was. What's interesting about this story to me is that Jeff is the absolute last person I would have ever paired to reach a student like Lisa. Jeff is one of 10 conservative students I have in our ministry of 125. Jeff is an ROTC. Later that week, he literally led a ceremony on campus to honor the flag. But I love that on that day, which could have been a day of celebration for him because I can guess how he voted. He decided to pursue someone for a greater cause than earthly politics, and he engaged in kingdom proclamation. So two days after burning an American flag in front of the student union building, Lisa became a friend of Jeff. And Lisa came to Chi Alpha's worship services. Because she's a millennial, she decided to talk about her experience publicly on Twitter, which always makes me nervous. And she said this, this was the first time I had ever been in a church or a worship service where I have felt loved and accepted by people. The most heartbreaking part of her story is that both of her parents are pastors. She shared in an interfaith chapel service that as a survivor of sexual assault and because of the climate politically of our country and because how her and her parents are parsing politics so differently, she's not going home for the holidays. She doesn't have the family support to lean on. But guess what? Because of Jeff, Lisa now can lean on Jesus. Lisa can now lean on something greater than a political ideology greater than an election result. She can rely on the love of Jesus, and she has continued to be engaged in our community. My hope in prayer in Chi Alpha is that I would be able to continue to train hundreds of students like Jeff to reach thousands of students like Lisa. And I love that it just took one student to recognize a hurt, One student to put aside his preferences. And get this, Jeff didn't start burning American flags to reach her. He didn't change his political beliefs. But he realized that there was an image of God buried beneath the hurt, buried beneath the protest, and buried beneath her rough exterior. And so my hope in prayer today is to encourage you, a wonderful church that loves missions, that believes in Chi Alpha, Our prayer should be this, would our worship be so great and be so full that it not only changes us, but it changes those around us? And would we be willing to be a Jeff in our community, in our school, in our workplace, where we would see people that think differently, vote differently, and look differently than us? And would our worship be so full to the God who is so great 
that we would be able to reach them and to love them and serve them. Because a lot of people, as I read the Gospels, that didn't agree with Jesus loved being around him. And I woke up one day wondering, who loves me the most? Is it people that have been in church all their lives, or or is it those on the outside of society? Those that are hurting. And my hope and prayer is that all of us would wake up and continue to worship so that we can continue to see students, teachers, people in our lives, just like Lisa, come to know Jesus fully. Would you, would you stand up? Now, Blaine will be in the lobby after service if you want to chat with him. And um, he needs some support to get back on campus, too. So if you want to talk with him and see if you can meet some of his needs and get behind him and his team. But the worship team is going to come back up. And we're going to put into practice some of these things that we've been talking about in worship. A few weeks ago, um, I ended the service with this song called Reckless Love. And it reminds me of the great lengths that God makes to pursue us with his love. And that's why that story when Blaine told it just caught me um, so much because it reminded me even of this song, of this very thing that we've been praying as a church, of this thing that we've been ascribing ultimate value to God because he fights until we're found. Because he leaves the 99. Because as that, that song says, there's no shadow that he won't light up. There's no mountain that he won't climb up, and there's no wall he won't kick down or lie he won't tear down because God is going to come after us. And if we allow him, we can have that same spirit of worship inside of us, and he'll help us get other people. He'll help us pursue others and show them the love and the gospel and who Jesus is. So we're going to go into a time of worship together corporately so we can see more of God in each other. And I want to encourage you um, to let God change you today, to let God do something inside of you today, to let God change your emotions, your will, your mind, to, to maybe move from your seat if you need to a different perspective, to, to sit, to stand, to wash a window if you, if you want to wash a window. Do whatever it is to let out what's inside of you, those emotions. If you're facing adversity this morning, I want you to let that push you towards God, not pull you away. Maybe he's waiting for your heart to be humble and not hardened so he can move on your behalf. So let's just pray this morning as you prepare yourselves to worship through these last moments of our service. God, I thank you that you are so worthy, God. Father, I pray that even now our thoughts could be away from our man-centeredness and to our god to center around you, God. That there would be um, just this complete ascribing all of your value, God, that nothing could be more worthy, that nothing could be more important, God, than you in this moment. And Lord, I pray for those that are facing adversity right now. And I ask God that they would lean into you in these moments. God, that they could see you pursuing them, Lord, that they could lean into you, Father, and that you would allow their hearts to be soft and humble before you, God. And I pray for those that are feeling lost, Lord Jesus, maybe even those who don't know you personally this morning that are here. God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that they could hear and see that you are pursuing them with your reckless and relentless love. 
God, thank you that you used Jeff to reach Lisa. And we pray that the fullness of who you are would just encompass Lisa, God, that the seeds of truth that were planted in her life at a young age would be unearthed, Lord, even in this moment, and that she could come to a full and saving knowledge of who you are and walk faithfully with you, God, through this, this support and love of Kyle Finn, D.C. God, I thank you for all the seeds that are being planted in Turkey, as we heard about earlier, and the ones that are just continuing to be planted throughout this community, Lord, through each of these people. And I ask, Lord God, that your reckless love would stir them up, Lord, even now. God, we're trusting you. We come into this moment of worship with expectant and hungry hearts. We want more of you and more of your Holy Spirit. And God, it's in your name we pray. Amen.
lie you won't tear down coming after me sing that church no shadow you won't light up
singing over me You have been so, so So, so kind